0: Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Financial Survival brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver Trading. I'm Melody Sederstrom, and I'm very happy to welcome back uh, to the program James Corbett of the Corbett Report. And as you all know, James is the founder and editor of the Corbett Report and also the lead editorial writer for the International Forecaster. And, of course, that is the weekly newsletter that was created by uh, the recently deceased Bob Chapman, and you can view James's work at thecorbettreport.com. And you can also request your complimentary copy of the International Forecaster just by going to the website theinternationalforecaster.com. And once again, welcome to the program, James.
1: Well, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yes, I'm beginning to truly enjoy these. I missed these evening programs for so many years, and uh, I know Alfred always did a great job, And uh, but now I'm beginning to enjoy them. So, uh, let's get started right away. We have, um, I have a quick question for you. It's, it's going to be a brief answer, I'm sure, but can you remember a time in history, recent history, um, that a country... And I'm not even quite sure how to describe this, but a country that has shown such division and hatred towards one man, and of course I mean President Trump, and in addition to the seemingly unrest among its citizens, um, as we're seeing and, and we see an experience here in the United States today. Ah. Uh... How about yes, uh,
1: Romania, 1989? Okay. Nicolae Ceausescu? No. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> that's a little bit of uh, revolution humor for you. Um,
0: and I'm laughing.
1: <laughs> well, I, uh, no. Uh, I mean, to give you the brief answer that you're looking for, no. It's uh certainly unprecedented in American politics there's always the tension there's always the left right there's always the bickering but obviously things are ratcheted up to such an extreme level today and i think there are many different reasons why that is but uh nevertheless here we are
0: what is i'm not going to ask for the reasons but um maybe i am uh, i mean why all of a sudden i mean sure we can get to you know what you you can call it whatever you want, the deep state, and and so forth, and but truly, I mean, this um, is this just a sign of the times, the the the, the, the desperation uh, from countries that, or maybe even from around the world, that are just showing signs of of something. <laughs> well,
1: there are a uh-uh. lot of different things that go into this, as I say, and some of them are the kind of big macro-level issues, um, and that's the the sort of the cycles of history, as it were, and that's been expressed a lot of different ways. People might have heard of the fourth turning or things like this, where it seems, at a, about an 80-year cycle, um, which corresponds to three or four generations, and there are, seems to be a generational thing that goes into this, but at any rate, there seems to be a rising and ebbing of revolutionary fervor that comes every 80 years or so and that uh, you can go back in american history and follow that pretty predictably for the last few hundred years anyway so that's that's an interesting sort of macro phenomenon and i think we're definitely within that range of it's about time for something to be rising right at the moment um but uh beyond that there's there's economic that also lines up with some of the economic cycles um uh I believe the Kondratiev wave and some of those other things that seem to be converging on this time period. But on a social scale, I would say one of the things that feed into this is the rise of the internet. This is something, uh, the form in which we are consuming media and the extent to which we are consuming media is truly unlike any other period of history. People have always read newspapers and things like that, but obviously those were... Always forms of media that were not immediate, that allowed for space and time and reflection, that were heavily gate-kept, which meant that obviously only certain writers with certain opinions would ever really likely get in front of your face anyway... Um, So there was a lot more control that went on in that respect. Um, We've seen the uncorking of that bottle for all the good that it has given us and all the bad as well. And I think one of the bad sides of that is the filter bubble that so many people are living in to an extent that I think would have been impossible before. I think it would have been impossible for a a liberal to only consume liberal media and only hear from liberal people in the past, in the same way it would have been impossible for a conservative to live in such a bubble in the past. But now you really can live in your own little bubble online and never really have that bubble pricked Um, except, of course, for the outrage. I mean, you'll read about, oh, can you believe this person said that? But you'll only read about it from the sources that you like in the first place. So that is contributing to a type of division, uh, a widening of that division that I think is also uh, a contributory factor to what we're living through right now.
0: You know, you meant, you know, the Internet. I mean, everybody knows everybody talks about that you can't believe everything you see on the internet but yet everybody believes everything they see (laughs) on the internet and read Uh, not everyone I don't Um, I know where I get my items and you know that I read and in you know and research and so forth and it's but yet you know if it's there I mean I have seen I mean the pictures anymore the videos anymore the YouTube's anymore um, you can see how people can you know get caught up in in in, in this air, this time of confusion and and you're right they've created their own little bubbles and you can't no one you can't prick those bubbles you you can't even get you know to try to help people understand i mean they are so blinded it's it's truly amazing
1: I think. It is. And I, I, as always, I don't want to exempt myself or anyone else from this. It, it affects all of us. And to a certain extent, yes. we need bubbles of some sort because we can't just take in all the information from every side all the time. That I mean, it's impossible to do so. We have to uh, have some form of filter as, oh, this is reliable or I'll look at this and I won't look at that because I know it's going to be a waste of my time. The question is always, well, is that a set filter that has been, you know, hardwired into place that you'll never change. And if so, that could be a a problem. And again, it's not a problem that's easily solved, especially because just by the nature of the technology that we have at our disposal now and the way that it's uh, being incorporated into our life, it's unlikely anytime soon that this is going to... I mean, we're not going back to the era of newspapers and magazines and things. I mean, we're here at this point. The question is, what do we do with it? And how do you... Prick people's bubbles, introduce ideas from outside of their um, filter that uh, that will somehow get through all of the spin that they're they're used to, and that is, in some ways, that's kind of the the entire purpose of what I do at the Corbett Report. I it, the the funny thing is when I started the website, I envisaged it being. Deeply unpopular, and I envisioned it uh, uh, generally uh, constantly fighting battles against people who, oh, what you you don't believe the official government story of 9/11? You're a a a cook, crazy quack, or whatever. The strange thing, for the thing that I wasn't expecting, was that in fact, over the years, the vast majority of people who listen to my program agree with a lot of the things mm-hmm. I say. Of course, they disagree with this or that, and they'll make it certainly well-known, but they tend to agree with a lot of the things that I thought would have been the controversial things that would have been pricking people's bubbles. So, somehow, despite the fact the corporate report is meant as a bubble-pricking device, <laughs> it I'm not sure it necessarily does that. Um, so... There is always the question well am i just preaching to the choir but no the choir is growing i know it is growing i can see that from the 11 years i've been doing this now i can see there are more and more people who um the the types of ideas that i talked about that would have been controversial a a decade or two ago are getting more and more mainstream so i know the bubble pricking is happening But how? How do people encounter new information that fundamentally changes their viewpoint? It's a fascinating question. And I think that's probably why the most common question I get, especially when I'm doing an interview for the first time, is how did you get into all of this? I mean, obviously, I wasn't born a a crazy conspiracy theorist. I mean, obviously, there were things and events and pieces of information that got me here. And it's always interesting to hear how people get to this information because most people do live most of their lives in the filter bubble.
0: What happens when those bubbles are pricked and they explode? (laughs) Or will they ever? Can't
1: it? I mean, that's I think why we have this uh, this metaphor from. Well, I was going to say from the Matrix. I guess it isn't from the Matrix. Well, we have this metaphor of waking up, or you know, or or getting jacked out of the Matrix, or whatever, and. For a lot of, I mean, it's a disorienting experience when some some of the things that you took as absolute bedrock, the foundations of your world, are taken away. Obviously, that is a very disconcerting experience, and a lot of people, a lot of people have big big problems with that. And some people, I imagine, probably even try to go back to sleep, as it were, after learning problematic pieces of information. Although it's extremely difficult to do that, I I don't think I would have been able to do that even if I'd wanted to. So. Um, but it can absolutely completely uh, uh, disorient people, and and I think lead to the uh, the types of, if not the type of division, at least the 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 sort of extent to which we see division happening in society right now. I think that can be ramped up by people having their their worldview shattered of having the sense of normality gone people see it as this epic struggle this is now life and death i'm suddenly what's going on and i think they lash out even harder as a result as a result of that
0: and perhaps that's why we're seeing you know certain areas of violence creeping up and so forth don't know but uh it's almost frightening to think of you know what when it actually happens to a large degree, to a large volume of people and so forth, the outcome that will happen. But let's go on and talk about Helsinki. I think you're, uh, you've are you been, most likely you've, you've talked about it, and I hope you, you would like to talk some more about it, uh, perhaps uh, maybe about the, the fallout that's coming since Monday's uh, Helsinki Summit. Um, you know, again, it's almost it has been unmerciful for, for the most part in the, you know, in D.C., in the press and social media, uh, the Trump administration. Um, how's it been in Asia? And what has the press and everything over there been saying?
1: Well, I I think, again, this is covering it from the perspective of, of NATO and what this means, uh, ultimately, for the the NATO alliance. I think that's kind of the bigger geopolitical issue from the foreign perspective and a lot of what people are looking at right now, especially, of course, in the wake of uh, the, the bruhaha within NATO about the uh, 4% of GDP and all of that. So I think this is just a follow on from that from the from the foreign perspective. I've obviously seen a lot of the American media uh, response, and uh, this is the worst moment of any president ever kind of thing that's been playing out in your media. Um, over here, it's kind of what's the bigger picture of this and what does it mean um, in terms of things like the NATO alliance? And what does that mean if specifically in East Asia with regards to the Asian security situation? It's a couple of steps to get from here to there, though. And one of the most interesting takes I saw on Helsinki before it happened was the, the floating of the possibility of, well, what if what we are about to see is the the kind of tectonic shift, the thing that would have been unthinkable um, just a few months ago even, uh, what if it's going to be a U.S.-Russian alliance, economic or maybe military or geostrategic against China? And that that's intriguing to me because I do see, I've talked about the historical parallels um, with the build-up to World War One. I. I did a presentation in Denmark last year, um, Echoes of World War One," that people should look up if they haven't seen it, where I was talking about all of the different parallels between the build-up to World War I and what we're seeing right now with the China-US tensions. So, at, of course, 100 years ago, it was rising Germany and Britain was getting pretty nervous about that. So we saw some things happening diplomatically in the run-up to World War I that would have been unthinkable even just a year or two before they happened, like the Triple Entente, the the alliance of Britain and Russia and France was... A kind of crazy alliance in some ways. It was, again, something that people, even a couple of years before that point, would have thought, that's, that's impossible, that'll never happen. But it happened. And it happened specifically because Britain and specifically the certain parts of the British oligarchy were preparing for to take on Germany. And in order to do so, well, they're going to get France and Russia on their side to basically flank Germany. Well, we could see I mean, it would make some sort of strategic chance, uh, sense if, the, if for example, if the Trump administration really did see China as the enemy, as is indicated by some of the people who are populating the Trump administration, it would make some sense to have a strategic alliance with Russia against China, because Russia and China, although they are neighbors, are certainly have not had a history of pleasant relations with each other, at least since the 1960s. And they have been forced into each other's arms to a certain extent over the last several years by being basically both targets of the U.S. and NATO. But if Trump turned around and said, hey, you know, maybe we can buddy up, uh, and uh, will sort of woo you away from China, that could be a beneficial relationship in that sense. I mean, if we're looking at the 2D geopolitical chessboard, it would be an interesting move to make. We obviously didn't see such a grand announcement of, or anything of the sort. I wouldn't expect we would. But if this is the first steps towards something like that, that would be interesting, but of course also worrying, because again, the parallel is to the buildup of World War I.
0: Well, you know, b- Russia... They've been dumping u s. treasuries. And this was uh, you know, in the months before the meeting with with uh, President Trump. And we know that Russia uh, ranks among the top 10 foreign holders of U.S. Treasury bills. And I was kind of amazed at some of these numbers. Uh, there was the, the monthly um, uh, report issued by the Department of the Treasury uh, yesterday showed that Russia in May fell below the $30 billion minimum necessary for inclusion on the government's monthly list of major Treasury holders. And it shows that, uh, and I didn't realize. Uh, let me get pull up these numbers here. Um, their holdings have fluctuated in recent years, though, and they ran as low as uh, 7.4 billion in March of 2007, and as high as 175 billion in July of 2010. And uh, now we're, you know, floating at uh, again those low, low levels. So, actually, they kind of helped us during the Great Recession. I mean, if they went from 7.4 in 0.7 to 175 in 2010, um,
1: well, of that course, was, where uh, are you going to flee other than the safety of U.S. Yeah. Treasuries? Uh, U.S. Treasuries. Yeah. So yeah. that is the logic of the system. Whenever there's a crisis, uh, the U.S. really does benefit in that sense, and of course, that's the uh, the privilege of being the printers of the world reserve currency. Um, you can print as much paper as you want and people will be hungry for it, especially during times of crisis. But of course, it also creates the the problem. Well, people realize this is an unstable system. It doesn't benefit us. So they start to move away. And of course, that's why in 2009, we saw the, Chinese, the People's Bank of China governor openly Advocating as they have ever since for the IMF special drawing rights to replace the US dollar as the world reserve currency, and we've seen moves towards that over the last several years. It's a process that will take time, but uh, we're starting to see that. And another indication of that, not just Russia going down to uh, uh, what was it, $14.9 billion in holdings now, but China's holdings of treasuries declined by. Almost 200 billion dollars yes. over several months. Yes. So, again, yeah, this is a move away from U.S. Uh, treasuries.
0: And um, we're moving away into a, a new break, and we'll re- be right back right after these few short messages. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival. I'm Melody Sederstrom, and I'm here with my guest, James Corbett. And uh, going into the break, we were talking about uh, the amount of treasuries that uh, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin's uh, government is busy dumping uh, in the months prior to the meeting uh, in Helsinki with President Donald Trump. And since we're talking about Helsinki, and I think it was – Tuesday night in an interview, because this kind of goes along with the the NATO topic, um, President Trump, again, stirred up some, you know, fury, I guess, among the NATO NATO nations, but this time he was questioning the wisdom of the alliance's collective defense terms, and he warned that uh, it's potentially risky because of the tiny country, Montenegro. And he used uh, that country as an example. It has uh, 630,000 people, but Trump warned they may get aggressive, and congratulations, you are in World War III, he said, and that was very uh, unfair. So, what's his concern, and why even the comment? I mean, he took credit for increasing the money flow into NATO. Uh, Should NATO be dissolved and let each country in the world fend for themselves?
1: Absolutely yes. NATO should be dissolved, and not because yeah. it's just the uh, the other countries aren't paying their fair share. It's because it is, uh, in every sense, an anachronistic institution that there's n- there's not even a theoretical need for at this point in time, and it really is the undergirding of a military empire the world the the likes of which the world has never seen people i think probably don't understand the extent to which nato has expanded over the last couple of decades to the point where north atlantic treaty organization means absolutely nothing it has partnerships all over the world including here in asia part you know korea is one of the south korea is one of the global partners of NATO, and all of this so they have their fingers everywhere in the world it is essentially a global military police force And it doesn't spread sunshine and lollipops and rainbows, and... Article 5 is particularly important. I I mean, if nothing else, I would hope that Article 5 at least gets scrapped because it is a collective suicide pact or collective genocide pact or, you know, whichever side of the coin uh, lands on. It's not good news. And Article 5, for those who don't know, is the collective self-defense clause of NATO. If any NATO nation is attacked, then all NATO nations will spring to the defense. Well, okay, I mean, it makes sense in some sense as a collective security agreement, but Do you know the only time Article 5 has ever been invoked?
0: Oh, I read that earlier today. Um, you're testing my memory, but why don't you just tell us?
1: <laughs> NATO invoked Article 5 so that they could go into oh, Afghanistan.
0: Afghanistan. That's 17
1: years about. ago, where they still are today, of course, and will probably still be 17 years from now because of the geostrategic importance of Afghanistan. And of course, it has nothing whatsoever to do with their fear that Afghanistan was going to take over Europe or anything of the sort. It was all about, the, of course, the bin Laden boogeyman and that uh, that the, that story which was used to invoke Article 5. There's actually a fascinating story behind that where the uh, invocation of Article 5 was done on the basis of a secret briefing that NATO countries uh, received uh, in the wake of 9-11 that supposedly, supposedly had secret information about, how, oh, well, don't worry, we can prove to you guys that it was bin Laden and therefore that... It was... Afghanistan and therefore that we should invade Afghanistan. Again, it doesn't make any sense. But actually, I I have some interesting information I'm going to be reporting on very soon about that secret briefing and what it actually contained yeah. and the fact that it did not, of course, did not contain any proof of bin Laden's culpability in 9-11. But anyway, that is the one and only example of it ever actually being used. But of course it is always the threat on the table that if anything happens in any of these NATO countries and they point the finger at anyone they want, they can they can use it to to uh, wield the sword of NATO against their enemies. And so you could imagine any kind of destabilizing event, imagine something happening in Turkey and suddenly Syria is the, the enemy and we have to go after Syria. Uh, it could be used in so many different ways. And uh, I think Trump is right to say, you know, congratulations, World War Three. It could very well happen. In fact, that, I think that would be one of the most likely ways it would happen would be the invocation of NATO Article 5.
0: Hmm. Huh. Very interesting. You know, when you're talking about their power and the and the their police, I came across an article today that I thought was interesting, and it takes us to um, these special forces. And I haven't seen much, I haven't seen a lot of articles or information on this and so forth. Um, But this was from a, uh, I don't know, it was by Nick Terse and Tom Englehart. And it was Special Ops 133 Countries Down, 17 to Go. And it talks about these elite forces, and, and they aren't just elite forces anymore, they're America's secret military. And uh, they are increasingly deployed to uh, something startlingly close to all the countries on the planet, aside from a few obvious ones like the big ones, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. But they are raiding and fighting from Syria to Afghanistan, Somalia um, to Niger. They're, They're training allied special op types. Um, they even went in there to help with the twelve Thai soccer players and their coach. And so I mean it's it's huge. and they're going into these areas. Half of Congress doesn't know about where they're at, where they're fighting. There was four soldiers that were killed. Um, I can't remember the exact place uh, South Africa not too long ago, the beginning of this year, and others have been killed in various other places and wounded and so forth. Is, is that anything is it just i mean why are they concentrating in in, in africa and i know that africa has uh the minerals uh um is is it's just fascinating it is
1: fascinating it's scary really because what is. this what this is a sign of is the cancer that is festering underneath the surface that is called the deep state or the shadow government or whatever you want to call it any and every opportunity to cover over the things that are happening under the cover of secrecy, oh, national security, it's secret, you can't know about it, will be used to expand that shadow government out. And so we really can but dimly comprehend and only kind of grasping it from the outside just sort of feeling feeling the shape of the elephant uh blindfolded we can understand how big the elephant is but we we don't have a a proper grasp on the real numbers of it but this is just one aspect of that i think the cancer really started to metastasize um, with the passage of the national security act in 1947 and yeah. the creation of the cia and all of that but this is another aspect of it of course even before the cia there was military intelligence that's where the cia grew out of in the first place anyway and the special forces and all of this is just another form of trying to put a cover over so that you can screen what you're actually doing so how big is it really uh, we can only get glimpses of it here and there but um we get spectacular glimpses of it when there is some sort of major problem or disaster or at least ones that they can't cover up like earlier this year when one of the Green Berets died in Papua yeah. New Guinea like what what was going on there why are they there it was an Okinawa-based special forces soldier who died in Papua New Guinea what's going on yeah so we we only get it from the outside and we can only in that sense extrapolate from what we know about what they're doing and yeah there seems to be a lot of special forces activity in Africa is well obviously Africa is becoming a more contentious uh, area as China moves in trying to extract the resources through trade. And the uh, U.S. has been hankering for at least a decade since the creation of AFRICOM to get a military toehold in the continent so they can continue to do what they do best, which is extract resources at the end of the barrel of the gun. Um, but they still don't have a military base, per se, proper in Africa, so they have to do a lot of special forces work. And I think that's why we see a lot of that coming out there. But... Where else are they? What other uh, places are they engaging in, and what types of activities? Again, that only comes to the surface in spectacular stories like uh, the the Green Beret that died in Papua New Guinea.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's fascinating, and uh, uh, I'd like to find out a little bit more about it, but thank you for commenting on that. also, there was there was a lot of news yesterday on uh, oh on Tuesday. There was a lot of news, a lot of comments uh, to the reporters from President Trump. But he said that the talks with North Korea are going very very well, but that there is no hurry on the denuclearization process. He said that there is no time limit on the process. Is this normal? Is this good? Is it bad?
1: Uh, Well, in terms of diplomatic speak, I think we would expect that. I don't think anyone wants to paint themselves into a corner or I think that's generally how diplomatic uh, situations work. I I mean, I guess no one can really say with this North Korean uh, situation that anything is really normal uh, status quo. But generally, I think in a diplomatic situation, you're not going to paint yourself into a corner and put some deadline on things as long as things are progressing and there is some sense that you're coming towards the is some sort of deal. So um that doesn't particularly surprise me. The real question I think is what is actually being discussed at these meetings and what kind of progress is or isn't being made and what kind of deals are or, not, are, or are or are not being made. And I think that's the kind of thing that will probably only be made known to the public years later by some you know someone writing a tell all and even that tell all will be heavily screened by the appropriate intelligence services and state department and all of that so you know it, it to ought to be a fly on the wall during these types of
0: talks oh, i know it but, i know uh,
1: it you know we can only again come at it from the outside
0: Should people be concerned that there was, uh, I guess there there was the interpreter between um, uh, Putin and President Trump, that uh, there was an interpreter, and I do believe Putin did have the conversation recorded. Should Americans be concerned because we have no recording of the meeting That was said for those two hours, that the two alone, I mean, oftentimes you can have, you know, leaders go off to the side and, you know, talk 5, 10, 15 minutes. uh, Well, if if
1: there really is no record, I mean, again, can you take any of this without a huge grain of salt? Who really knows? And do you think the U.S. would really enter into a situation? They tap everyone on the planet at all times. I can't believe they don't have a way of getting that i mean hey maybe trump just had an iphone in his pocket so the nsa has it all anyway you know what i mean um (laughs) but yeah again i i guess so but even if there was i mean i'm sure there is a recording but we're never going to hear it unless of course some you know intelligence agency wants to strategically leak some part of the conversation to some you know new york times or what have you in order to make some story again those are the those are the only ways that that type of information ever filters down to the public anyway
0: uh, I saw another headline today, and it was the Israeli army is preparing for invasion of Gaza. Um, they've been fairly quiet. It's been, you know, they've been kind of out of the news and so forth. Any concerns there, or is this just more of the the same?
1: Well, there is always, I think, an ongoing concern. Um, but uh, but I will reserve judgment until whatever happens actually happens because uh, i mean you could have you you could have made that headline and written that story at any point in the last you know 15 20 years probably as long as i've been alive Um, you could have made that headline and it would have been as true then as it is today Uh, again until something happens uh, i'm not sure we can necessarily uh, count those eggs until they hatch but uh, again we know that um, there have been strategic strategic operations that involve targeting civilians and strafing them and killing children on the beach and all of that stuff um, time and time again um, in recent years. And uh, the the interesting part of all of that is that public opinion has started to shift away from just knee-jerk whatever happens defending Israel to there has been some unfavorable coverage and some unfavorable things that uh, that surprisingly got out um, with regards to, for example, the invasion of Gaza in, what was it, 20, I want to say 2012, um, where we started to see some of the atrocities that were being committed actually being reported even in mainstream sources. So there, are, I think there is, uh, uh, there is a difference uh, at this point. I think Israel is a little bit more aware of the fact that they need the PR on their side. So I, I think that might be a bit of a break. But then again, now that Trump is in power and Trump is a 110% supporter of Israel and Bibi Netanyahu who's the best guy in politics and all of this mm-hmm. stuff. And maybe that calculus is changing.
0: Quick question. He's back. Obama, in his first major speech since leaving office, uh, he wants to endorse the idea of providing a universal basic income. He says uh, uh, that uh, we're going to have to, if we're going to worry about economics, um, If we want to get democracy back on track, we need to have the universal basic income. What say you?
1: Universal basic income is a nightmare waiting to happen. It's one of those ideas that sounds good, and I get the idea of it, but all it ever means is the government will – don't worry. The government will provide for you. It will wrap you in its loving arms and provide you this money if you jump through the right hoops if you're good enough and just look to china and what they're doing with their social credit system and you get points if you're pro-government you get docked points if you're if you're against the government and they are now literally banning people from taking airplanes or buses or trains because they aren't pro-government enough I mean, that's the type of power you are putting in the government's hands when you give them the power to say, "Okay, you can be part of this program. We'll give you the income, you know, as long as you say the right things, as long as you don't go to protests, as long as you're a good citizen. And that's exactly where this is ultimately heading
0: and that is also frightening because most people think it's a great idea. A lot of people think it's a great idea. They don't see that the you know they don't see what uh, can happen. So um we're just about out of time. I want to do any closing thoughts you'd like to share with us? The- well, I'll
1: just uh, invite people to stay tuned to CorbettReport.com. I'm always working on new information and episodes and reporting and stuff. I've mentioned some of it uh, already. And, and in fact, I'm going to be uh, expounding a little more on that filter bubble idea in the near future. So people can stay tuned for that as well. Uh, all of my work available for free at CorbettReport.com.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, uh, I heard there was record rainfall in Western Japan in uh, early this month. Is that... Absolutely
1: incredible torrential downpour, uh, flooding all around the area where I'm at. Luckily, myself and my family were uh, spared, but uh, there's been flooding and friends of friends are now essentially homeless. I'm going to help with some of the cleanup uh, tomorrow. So it's just an incredible situation.
0: I had no idea it was close to where uh, you were at. So um, please be safe and uh, prayers for you and your friends and family uh, that have been affected. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're out of time until tomorrow. Be safe, good night, and God bless.